all the newest addition to the comparative media studies and writing and humanistic studies faculty here at MIT. And so welcome board Nick and take it away. Thanks. Thanks very much, Henry. So um, the uh, four we have here have the difficult task of uh, summarizing, wrapping up, and uh, providing our backward glance over um, the conference and these three days that we've had here. Um, I will, uh, uh, we'll, we'll have comments from Suzanne de Castell first, uh, then from Jose van Dyck, uh, then uh, Fred Turner, and finally from uh, Siva Vaidanathan. And um, what I'll do is uh, introduce each of these um, people before, uh, before they begin with their comments. And then as Henry said, uh, we'll move quickly to start hearing from um, uh, people uh, out, in the, um, uh, out in the audience um, who, uh, if you want, uh, you can address a question to um, uh, our panelists here. But uh, you can also try to um, uh, offer some suggestions and comments for future directions, uh, because we're looking uh, forward at that point as well. Um, so to begin. Uh, Suzanne Castell is a professor in the Faculty of Education in Curriculum and Instruction at Simon Fraser University, specializing in literacy, new media, and educational technology studies. She's published uh, very widely across these fields and uh, was the senior editor for the books Literacy, Society, and Schooling, um, and Language, Authority, and Criticism, and also Radical Interventions. Uh, Suzanne? Thanks very much, Nick. Um, I hope you'll forgive me for reading. Um, it's, uh, it's been such an intense conference that I barely have a brain cell left, so I thought it was safer. Um, so what did we learn? What did we accomplished? Where do we go from here? When all that's been solid melts into code, how do we rethink and remake scholarly praxis, theory, research, and pedagogy built from and for a literate universe? Quality becomes quantity, arts and sciences are refused, media fluidly converge, and even the ontology of the body, this too-too solid flesh of Hamlet's distracted imaginings, becomes molten as virtuality, especially for those who have never known the literate world from, the, from which their elders have come, becomes more tangibly and affectively and even materially more substantial than what we fondly term the real. This rich and densely textured conference has illustrated in theoretical, methodological, and pedagogical terms the multitude of ways we have moved beyond text as our primary mode. Well, some of us have, and clearly some of us haven't, as our primary mode of representation, creation, and expression, ever more fully engaging with and making astonishingly inventive uses of emerging digital systems, codes, and tools without relinquishing the deep and rich fields and forms of mastery thus far evolved from the cultural logics of print. For someone working in the field of education, this has been an exhilarating conference, which has delivered one after another challenges to what the first panel wonderfully termed Gutenberg tendencies and the textual preferences that have driven and still drive most of what goes on in schools today. At that first panel, Benjamin Franklin made a guest appearance, and I want to recall him briefly for a moment as a way of pulling on just one slender thread of the very rich tapestry of these past few days. Um, this is Ben Franklin here. It was about this time, he writes, I met with an odd volume of The Spectator. I thought the writing excellent and wished, if possible, to imitate it. With this view, I took some of the papers and, making short hints of the sentiments in each sentence, laid them by a few days. And then, without looking at the book, tried to complete the papers again by expressing each hinted sentiment at length and as fully as it had been expressed before in any suitable words that should come to hand. By comparing my work afterwards with the original that I discovered many faults and amended them, 
but I sometimes had the pleasure of fancying that in certain particulars of small import, I'd been lucky enough to improve the method or the language, and this encouraged me to think I might possibly, in time, come to be a tolerable English writer, of which I was extremely ambitious. Is this plagiarism, appropriation, or is it remediation, remix, the workings of collective intelligence? The thread that I want to tug at is how, particularly for educators, we can most productively think about remix. At last night's plenary, and indeed throughout the day, we heard about and saw an extensive and variegated set of conceptions, all of which I think we've seen characterized as remix. So I want to draw attention to this variety and to pose a question about it. Remix is not a unitary concept, I want to suggest, but reference to a continuum between adults setting up systems, essentially template systems, that kids can seem to use to produce what seem to be their new own new creations, when really they're in effect pressing buttons. They aren't doing the kind of assimilated, deeply interiorized creative work that Franklin's talking about. To have educational value, we need to work for, uh, far above and beyond cut and paste. This isn't good enough thinking. We've seen examples along that continuum where you wouldn't need much more than the intelligence of a monkey to generate music images and various forms of written expression. And then we've seen examples where people have to delve deeply into media forms and themselves become transformed by their studious engagement, which is what education is supposed to do, help us form better, more intelligent, and more humane selves. Among the profoundly moving and extremely stimulating examples Ricardo Pitts-Wiley's and Juan Davis's work with youth that was presented last night at last night's plenary on learning th uh, through remixing. I do just want to say something here, though, about continuities and discontinuities. Even as we do our best to hold on to the past and through these remixed practices enrich our lives in the present, we need to pay particular attention to what's being held onto and what's being left behind. All the examples, or most of them, have tended to privilege mainstream canonical works by men and largely for and about men. And it isn't that this isn't remarkable, wonderful work and they're not remarkable, wonderful men, but there are also other things we need to connect with, to keep continuity with. That's why, for me, some of the most valuable learnings at this conference have come from the work on, in, on and by Indigenous and First Nations colleagues and collaborators for example, who've reminded us of the abstract and detached concepts that we have of intellectual property and copyright, by contrast with the grounded, community-driven forms of consultation and respectful accountability which shape digitally remediated practices of repatriating and archiving traditional cultural forms. I want to reference a couple of papers. Kimberly Christen's presentation on the archiving of Aboriginal art and culture gives us very different conceptions of database architecture, and indeed the very ungooglish I think I made up a word, conception of what a search is when organization and access protocols are driven by respect for and accountability to one's elders rather than the assumption that all knowledge is public knowledge and one need to be accountable only to those individuals, after all, mainly white males of a certain class and culture, who are said to have created a work. There are far higher creators being recognized in these locations. Katerina Te and please forgive my terrible pronunciation, her presentation on the physical removal of Aboriginal Islander land rich in phosphate, which was appropriated, in the most, is the most profound example of remixing I've ever encountered. Where a two and a half mile island was stripped, the very ground of a people's existence removed and relocated to fertilize the grasslands of both New Zealand and Australia to grow its lush green pastures for other people's animal and food production. And what I think we learn here is that we have to be very careful 
uh, not to unthinkingly import in our attempts to rethink these new foundational ideas, assumptions, ideologies, and concepts in ways that continue to privilege those worldviews and practices which have devastated other people in other places. And the concept of remix has gained itself some very valuable remixing in the work of these Aboriginal scholars who help us see the contours and limitations of our own ways of thinking and working. Where do we go from here? It seems to me if we don't want a literal and superficial and enduringly oppressive epistemology of remix and remediation, we need to go to the borders, limits, and edges to ideas whose deep roots challenge us to hold firm to our contexts and communities. We need these challenges from the borders and the margins, so an agenda of radical inclusion is, in my view, the most generative agenda for the future. And the road ahead? Well, for education, certainly we're called upon now to more fully understand how knowledge that had been only temporarily stabilized by print can now be reseen, as Ong's concept of secondary orality promised, under today's new digitally remediated conditions, reminding us in powerful ways that knowledge is always situated, always accountable to its communities, and ongoingly under construction. It is this kind of construction, a deep and informed and studious remixing, that can take us all, teachers and learners alike, into a better, more intelligent, and more ethical educational future. I would like to thank those very many colleagues for their marvelous work. We leave here greatly in your debt. Suzanne, thank you. Um, uh, next, we'll um, introduce uh, Jose van Dijk, uh, who will uh, provide her perspective. Uh, she's professor of media and culture in the Department of Media Studies, the University of Amsterdam. And uh, her books include The Transparent Body, A Cultural Analysis of Medical Imaging, uh, Imagination, Popular Images of Genetics, and Manufacturing Babies and Public Consent. Uh, coming this year from uh, Stanford University Press uh, will be her book, Mediated Memories in the Digital Age. Thanks, Nick. Um, you ended with a thank you, and I would like to start my uh, comments with a thank you, especially a thank you towards Henry and David and William, who put together this conference. And I think I speak for the entire European contingent here, sitting here, that it was one of the best conferences we've been to in you know, in re at least for me, that's true in recent years, perhaps in decades. Um, and I asked myself, why was this such an, such an exciting conference? I think the conference was so exciting because it was bursting with energy and a sense of the dawn of a new era. And perhaps, you know, those are large words for perhaps for what I mean, but um, it's basically making you become part of what has been called yesterday, I think, the C generation and the generation of the C and of the free. And by C, of course, that C stands for creativity, for collectivity, collaboration, and as William added yesterday, courage, which I think is a very uh, important notion, a very important part of the C. Uh, free, of course, stands for the free culture, the free sharing, and the f being free from the constraints of copyright. Now, that, of course, having said that, it generates a feeling of that we, or the you, you know, depending on what uh, uh, pronoun you choose, are part of a collective spirit. And it sort of makes you belong to an avant-garde that lifts you up, that, you know, where you become part of the bus. And it's happening here right now within these, you know, buildings of MIT. But having said that, I want to pause for a moment and reflect on what's happening outside the buildings of MIT and how the world outside uh, these buildings and this conference actually interferes with what we are doing here and what's happening here. 
And I would like to give you two anecdotes that happened to me over the past couple of days uh, to include that in my experience within the conference. First of all, this morning, uh, a cab driver took me to MIT and I, um, actually it was yesterday, the cab driver asked me what the conference I was attending was about. And I told him, well, you know, it's about media technologies, it's about games, about blogging, all that stuff on the internet. And then he answered, well, you know, I work two jobs, one to pay the rent and, you know, to feed my kids, and the other to let my two sons buy into PlayStations, uh, Xboxes, video games, all that stuff. You know, it's, it's expensive. So actually this, this comment made me think about, you know, what we're doing here. And the first observation I made was, well, who participates in a collaborative culture, a collaborative creative culture? Obviously, it's people who have time, money, and, and the education to turn their hobby games, making pictures, uh, video blogs, etc., making that hobby into a profession. And actually, it sort of reminded me that, you know, the cab driver reminded me that people need a first life in order to afford a second life. The second question that gen that, that scene in, uh, uh, generated was, who, is it, who participates in what culture? It's a culture that we celebrate here. That it's that participatory culture in which everyone seemingly interacts. But there's still a large part of culture out there that you know is still the consumer culture and the consumption culture that the cab driver, of course, was referring to when he was talking about his kid actually buying. You know, he having to buy all this stuff for his two sons. And as much as I like, you know, being part of this C generation of all the, the nice and creative Cs, I think we need not to forget about the other C part, you know, the C of consumption, of, uh, uh, of commodification, the C of control. So that, I think, is, you know, came out of my first um, observation. And the second one was actually um, uh, an observation I made by watching old media, namely television, on Friday night, 10 to 11 p.m. in my hotel, I watched an episode of American Experience. And that episode was uh, one of my favorite topics, the Summer of Love of 1968 in San Francisco. Um, and I was very much struck by the similarities between that episode and what I had been experiencing over the last two days here at MIT. Um, in that episode, of course, it was all about you know, the buzz and the, the, ex the excitement about free culture, free food, free music, uh, free sex, free drugs, free rock and roll. And basically, there was this whole sense of shaking up the notion of culture for the B generation, you know, the baby boomers. So it made me think about what does this excitement and the, uh, the buzz of the B generation the, uh, have to do with that of the C generation? Um, well, like the, C gen like the B generation, I think the C generation has a very strong sense of collectivism, of community, a feeling of, you know, the power that you can change even, that you can even change economic systems. You know, if not your own life, you can even change economic systems. In that episode, they burned money, you, you know, you saw those wonderful, all, you know, images of uh, hippies burning money, sharing food, you know, walking barefoot and sharing basically everything, including their spouses or wives or girlfriends or whatever. Pausing, you know, having looked at that episode, I, well, if there's one lesson we've learned from 1968, it's that that collectivism within a few years, you know, if you just think about that part of history, 
within a few years, that collectivism and sense of, of uh, uh, excite excitement and sharing was taken over by first drug dealers, publishers of porno, uh, media and the music industry moguls. I mean, this was really basically what happened in 1970 to 1975. Uh, Commercialism infiltrated collectivism and collectivism and the public sphere were appropriated by commercial and entrepreneurial interests. Now, I'm not saying that that will happen again, but I think it's basically an awareness that we, you know, that happened in history that we should also bring to this conference. I've been in many panels and we've discussed a lot of very exciting and interesting new models of um, uh, using and appropriating uh, commercial pop culture and make it part of a free public culture. Yesterday, I attended uh, Axel Bruns and John Banks' uh, a session on, uh, where we were sort of coining around new words for uh, production and consumption, like producers and co-creation. Very exciting new models that you know make you aware of the kind of culture that we're currently um, uh, uh, that we're currently experiencing, and I think it's very important to uh, explore those models. But on the other hand. Uh, if you, as I've done lately, looked into some of the marketing journals and the consumer reports, it is remarkable, and this reminds me of you know 1968 through 75. It's very remarkable how that discourse of collaboration and, and uh, uh, co-creation very easily and very quickly gets appropriated to advance the other C part, the commercialism and uh, consumption and etc. So. What I want to, uh, a comment I want to make for the future of, of, uh, of this conference, which, of which I hope there will be many. Um, I'm not particularly nostalgic for, you know, Habermas or, or Ardono here. I don't want to sort of push that, you know, theory onto this theme because it's, that would be completely ahistoric, a of course. But, um, well, actually it would be ahistoric because they uh, decry that commercialization of the public sphere. And that's not quite what is, I think we need to think of now. I think we urgently need to reflect on the appropriation of collectivism in the commercial sphere. So uh, I think that's, you know, the bo both sides of that, uh, of that coin I think we need to theorize on. The boundaries between the, you know, pu the public and commercial sphere, but also between public and private life have long been blurred. But I think we need to keep up with the theory of that blurring because there's a large world out there uh, that, uh, you know, has a lot of stakes in sort of in that blurring. And I think we need to uh, be aware of how that blurring is actually um, underpinning that reality. In conclusion, what I would like, uh, well, as much as I've completely enjoyed and thoroughly, you know, enjoyed all the perspectives that I um, uh, have seen here, I think there's something that we also need to work on. And there's a lot of collective intelligence in this hall and you know throughout the conference that can maybe help to uh, uh, to do this in in a future conference and in the years ahead of course um, for me something that I've learned from the B generation that I hope will bring into the in the C generation is that we need a lot more sophisticated but especially inclusive models of understanding that new framework of collectivism and commercialism, and especially the appropriation and reappropriation in this dynamic of culture that's going on. For me, even though we can no longer use the Habermas or Adorno, you know, that is sort of ahistorical, I hope we can still work to reappropriate those theories and to, um, to work, you know, within but also against some models that have learned us how to uh, theorize that. So, 
Basically, I want to conclude by calling on Thomas Malone of the Center for Collective Intelligence and to launch a new project, perhaps called Theory 2.0, or in which all of you could collaborate and we could sort of add to a, onto a project on theoretical frameworks that we could use in our classrooms, because I think that's very much needed at this point. Thank you. Thank you, Jose. We'll hear next from Fred Turner. Uh, Fred is a, an assistant professor in Stanford's Department of Communication. He's a journalist turned cultural historian and media scholar, and uh, is the author of several books from Counterculture to Cyberculture, Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Network, and The Rise of Digital Utopianism, and Echoes of Combat, The Vietnam War in American Memory. Fred. Thanks, um, and thanks, Jose, for, for bringing the counterculture into the picture. Um, <laughs> I thought you would like that. Yeah, I appreciated that. I watched that too, um, with a mix of nostalgia and loathing. Um, so, so when I first signed on for this conference, I thought it was a history conference. <laughs> and I turned out to be wrong, but in a really interesting kind of way. Um, I, for the last few days, I feel like I've been getting a, oh, am I too near the mic? Yes, thanks, appreciate it. Let's just move that away. Um, I feel like I've been getting sort of an explosive introduction to the contemporary world into the kinds of collisions of um, collaborative production with corporations, with different cultural forms, with different media platforms uh, that have been kind of swirling around me as I've spent the last five years in a library thinking about the 60s. Um, <laughs> and and that's, been, that's been very effective and, and, and really very interesting, and I'm very grateful for having been a part of it. At the same time, I thought what might be useful for me to do today was to, to sort of outline the three historical trajectories that I've been seeing most of the work that we've been doing here, mostly around present questions, fitting into, and then try to identify some historical trajectories that are, seem to me to be bubbling around the edges of our conversation um, that might need some articulation, where there might have been one or two presentations that took up some of the issues, um, but that might be areas that it would be fruitful for us to be digging in a little bit in the future. So it seems to me that a lot of our, our work here has been located in, in the historical trajectory of arguments about collective literary authorship and what authorship is. Um, you know, we started with, with Shakespeare, with oral folk tales, um, and we've looked at a whole variety of models of collectivity in terms of produ producing texts. A second tradition, um, struggles around copyright and regulation across American history in particular, but to some, some degree more broadly than that. Um, and I have some concerns about that particular stuff, and I, I guess well, I'll raise them now, I was gonna raise them a little later. We've talked a lot about cultural struggle, and I think this gets to the points of my two colleagues. Um, and in the, many of the discussions here, we've been using a language of collectivity and cultural struggle ported in from other eras, notably the 60s. And we focused, as many in the 60s did, our sense of the importance of social change on questions of cultural change, and particularly questions of how we make and circulate cultural goods. I think those are obviously really important questions. But as in the 60s, they may leave some other kinds of questions off the table. And I want to come to those in a moment. Um, the third tradition that I've seen quite a lot of here that I think is really neat is the, is the tradition of educational change. And I'm thinking particularly of Ivan Illich and the rise of the de-schooling movement, but of a, of a much broader movement that we're a part of to make education a more collaborative, inclusive, holistic, humane process than it might have been in the middle of the 20th century. And I think we see a lot of thought going into thinking about how remixing and collaborative practices around media, whether in formal education settings or outside them, contribute to that tradition. And I applaud that kind of work. I think it's neat. 
Um, at the same time, I think there are four historical trajectories, trajectories that might be hovering around our discussion that it might be helpful to, to, to get into. And, and one is the history of corporate transformation. You know, we often, coming, coming as I think many of us do out of a tradition of textual analysis, many of us focus on the engagement of creators, texts, and audiences. And that's the sphere of our analysis. And we can see those, that sphere working itself out now in very complicated ways in the relationship of fans to the various companies that produce media content. And Henry has written about this extensively and effectively. Um, I would argue that we need to see that work not only as a transformation of audience-producer relations, but as a, as, a, as a deep transformation in corporate consumer relations. Um, and as part of and in relation to a much wider um, move in the corporate world toward um, breaking down siloed firms toward outsourcing. Um, you know, I, I saw a, a couple of very effective presentations here on distributed labor in game worlds. Wow, that's pretty interesting. And that strikes me as part of a history of corporate America, not only expressive America. Second culture that, that um, a couple of folks, notably David Silver and a couple others have talked about, but not many, is military culture. When I was sitting in a game panel yesterday, I was listening to um, a speaker talk about the pleasures of mastery in the game world. And I was struck that games are born and were born in part here at MIT as part of military simulation culture. And that one of the pleasures that's most on offer to soldiers, as I discovered in working with a lot of soldiers in my first book, is the pleasure precisely of mastery. Mastering one's own, emo one's own emotions so as to be able to accomplish tasks, mastering one's own individuality so as to be able to collaborate in teams, and, and of course, and I don't, I don't mean to overplay this, but, but to use weapons for purposes of destroying others. Okay. Um, third, third tradition, and I, I don't have as much to say about this, and I think this was more covered, um, is, it, is in, uh, on the increasing and complex mediation of political life. You know, we, we, there's a lot, of, a lot of work going on around new media and collaborative modes of democratic engagement, grassroots engagement with political life. But I think that that's happening in a context that's still shaped by the massive mass mediation of political activity. And I would like to see more work engaging how grassroots activity connects to, undermines, collaborates with, challenges, um, the work of television stations, the work of campaign organizations to create images that work on television and radio, um, that kind of thing. And finally, um, something that again has been, been hovering here, and Craig Watkins I think presented very effectively on this question, is, is the question of race. Um, you know, We've talked a lot about, particularly online, again, game worlds, but other settings as well, as spaces in which people can express themselves, perform new identities, perform collaboratively. But one of the things that seems clear to me after having spent a lot of time looking at the 50s and looking at jazz worlds in the 50s in particular, and technocentric jazz worlds like the work of Sun Ra in the 50s, you know, those worlds were very collaborative and interracial. And technology and technocentric ways of understanding the world allowed people to collaborate. When I go online, what I often see, and Craig has spoken about this a great deal, is people performing racial styles in a way that is, is substantially more hardened. You know, you could, you know there, there are distinct styles that are coded African-American, that are coded white, that are coded other things. Um, and there are settings in which it's very difficult to cross those boundaries. And so if we're creating more democratic worlds, I'm, I, I think we need to think harder about the role of self-presentation and racialized self-presentation ported in from the material world into those democratic, or more potentially more democratic spaces, and how that's, how that's potentially not changing, for example, race relations, but rather hardening racial distinctions in our culture. Um, 
So I, I think I'd like to, to, to name a couple of questions, just two questions really, that I'd like to see um, go farther or I'd like to see developed. Um, I would like to see us work harder to develop theories of how networks connect to institutions and to non-entertainment corporations, to governments, to militaries. Um, networks can be, as they were in the 60s, enormously liberating for their participants. But the performance of new styles doesn't necessarily lead to social change, as, as the folks in the 60s discovered. Um, you know, the summer of love did not bring an end to the Vietnam War. It didn't. Um, Vietnam War went on six more years. Um, I'd also like to see um, techniques and theories and more thinking on which parts of the past matter. So the tactics of the historical tactics that I've seen here in, in many of the presentations that I've looked at are prefigurative. They're borrowed from literary study and they are essentially the identification of um, moments or styles that prefigure the moments or styles we find ourselves in now. That's terrific. It identifies possible trajectories but prefiguration and historical connection are actually distinct. And I'd like to see us do more tracing of the very particular histories of the machines, the collaborative styles, and the, the, the ideas about those machines and collaborative styles that, that we employ. And I think when we do that kind of tracing, we may see that some of our world owes less, perhaps, to hip hop than to the research laboratories of MIT in World War II, which were enormously collaborative, enormously playful, enormously technocentric, and aimed depending on your point of view, at defending the nation or destroying another. Um, so, um, I think doing that will allow us to make more substantial claims for and even embrace the power of networks in the present. And I think they'll let us say things are as they are now, partly because things are wonderful now, but partly because they used to be different in the past. And I, I think that will be a neat and useful thing to do. And I, I thank you all. I've had a wonderful time in the last few days. I feel like I've been living in a new world, yeah. and it's a treat. Thanks. Thanks very much, Fred. Uh, to finish off the official program here, uh, we'll hear from uh, Siva Vaidanathan. Uh, Siva's an associate professor of culture and communication at New York University. He's a fellow also at the New York Institute for the Humanities. Um, his books include The Anarchist in the Library, How the Clash Between Freedom and Control is Hacking the Real World and Crashing the System, and Copyrights and Copy Wrongs, The Rise of Intellectual Property and How It Threatens Creativity. Um, you can read his, uh, his writing in uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education, New York Times, Magazine, Salon, and The Nation. And uh, he's now at work on a book about Google. So, see? Thanks, Nick. Um, so yeah, new worlds and old. Uh, one thing I'm struck uh, with this weekend is just how much the weather in New England is like the weather in Old England. Um, and, and that really is my only disappointment about this weekend. It's been a, it's been a really wonderful and, and entertaining time. I've not only been able to connect with uh, many old friends, but uh, I made many new friends, um, most of whose uh, names I knew of and, and some of whom I hadn't heard of. And uh, I'm really excited by uh, what is emerging from this group, from this community. Um, and it reminds me of why I love my job. I love my job largely because I get to learn a tremendous amount when I end up in a room that has... Uh, computer scientists and, and cultural anthropologists in the same room or, or, or law professors and literary scholars in the same room. I mean, how, uh, you can't really beat that. That's, uh, that's the sort of model that 
Um, people who've been thinking about academia for, for 20 years have been arguing should happen, uh, but no, one, no dean or provost has been able to actually make that happen. Uh, Henry Jenkins managed to make it happen by inspiring us all with his work, and of course his, uh, his entire program at MIT is, a, is an example of, of how people with such diverse areas of expertise um, uh, can actually come together and produce really cool things. Uh, and get people in the same room. Um, and so there, I want to outline five things I learned this weekend. Um, and the things that I learned mostly inspired questions that I'd like to pursue, and I hope many of you want to pursue too. Uh, first of all, I learned that we are thinking very strongly about um, how culture is regulated uh, in the world. Um, we have a, a tremendous level of discussion about the sort of regulatory, regulatory structures um, that govern uh, how we share, distribute, chop up, and own culture. Um, now, of course, the most pervasive regulatory system uh, we have is the copyright system. Uh, I say pervasive, I don't say effective or, uh, or, uh, or dominant, um, but it does touch everything uh, and ultimately influences our, our questions and our expectations. And there was quite a bit of conversation about copyright um, very explicitly in the program. I mean, there were a number, I think five, uh, sessions devoted to copyright first and foremost. Um, and one of the things that I learned from that, and I'm, 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 I've been playing around with in my head for a long time, is this uh, fervent belief that we often depend on fair use a little too much. In other words, we, um, we credit fair use for being stronger than it really is, or we put too many important things and values on it. Consider all of the things we hope fair use does for us when we're dealing with culture. We hope that it protects all of the good democratic values uh, that we share. We hope that it corrects for the censorious power of copyright. We hope that it facilitates rich criticism and commentary and, and parody. We hope that it becomes the, uh, the breathing space for remix culture. That's a tremendous amount of important stuff to put on one very uh, mushy, uh, hard to understand, impossible to predict segment of Title 17 of the U.S. Code, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, you got to take my word for it, fair use is unpredictable, um, and it is maddening, and it's the sort of thing that if you study it long enough, uh, you still have no clear predictive ability uh, when dealing with it. Um, so I would like to see us get beyond fair use in, a, in an imaginative sense. Of course, defend it to the last quote, right? Defend it to the last sample, defend it to the last clip. Uh, we need it, we shouldn't give up on it, but we need to think about ways that we can codify and expand some enumerated uh, users' rights or citizens' rights. Uh, for instance, we need to actually develop an explicit right to sample, no matter what the media form is. Uh, and we need to really start working on uh, what that would look like in the code of the law, what that would look like in practice. Uh, we need to have an explicit right to archive, to create personal archives, to time, sh time shift media content, to space shift media content. Uh, and we need to do so globally. We can't depend on fair use because fair use stops at the border and the ocean. It doesn't even exist in Canada. We can't be so American-centric when we talk about copyright. You know, fair use is a really strong and important thing in certain communities in the United States, education first and foremost, um, but it really doesn't carry as part of the conversation when you get to a global information environment, and that's, of course, what we're talking about. Uh, now, the second thing I learned this weekend is that um, many of us are um, asking really important and deep historical questions. 
we're wondering whether we really are in a new era. We love the fact that we can sort of declare that we're in a new era. It makes us special. It gives us some sort of purchase within uh, intellectual and academic conversations. Uh, and there's lots of evidence that we are in a new era. But um, uh, you know, those of us who are historically trained are taught to check ourselves on those declarations all the time, right? Uh, and so it, it makes me wonder, I think it makes a lot of people wonder, um, uh, was, are we actually, are we actually waking up from the era that stands as a historical anomaly. In other words, was the era of corporate proprietary culture uh, with one-to-many distribution, was that a historical blip? Are we dealing with that for like an 80-year period and now we're sort of getting back to how people have always dealt with each other? Um, was it an anomaly of, 20th of the 20th century like the CB radio or communism? Um, you know, is, and after all, isn't remix culture just culture? Um, that, I think, is a really important question that's beyond a metaphysical question. Uh, and it's going to speak a lot to the political economy of communication in the future. Which leads me to my third thing I learned, is that we are on the verge of asking some really profound questions about political economy. Um, I heard several important papers uh, raise issues of ownership and control uh, above and beyond the copyright questions. Um, and I'm starting to have some real questions about the dynamic of free riding. When you see which is, free riding, by the way, is a very um, old and established concept within political economy, uh, within antitrust law, within competition law, um, and, and it's starting to be a big part of uh, our media environments and, our, and how media companies deal with each other. It is, of course, the prime uh, sin that Google seems to have committed that has angered so many other areas of, uh, of, of our media world. So, so, you know, of course, we need to pay attention and make sense of the fact, like, what's different now that News Corporation owns MySpace? What's different now that Google owns Blogger? What's different now that Yahoo is investing in eight different um, user-generated content sites? Where do the users stand in user-generated content? What is, our, what is at stake? And most importantly, what is at stake in the transaction? What is the nature of that transaction? When we give our stuff, when we let someone else's server hold and deliver our stuff, and, 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 and we allow someone else to make money off of it. Now that doesn't seem so bad because we seem to be using it for free in the free beer sense, not necessarily the free speech sense. But we have, of course, something to celebrate here in the free speech sense, right? We have these tremendous platforms paid for by uh, certainly blips in capital markets that are allowing us to speak freely and reach audiences we never thought possible before. Uh, and in the free beer sense, we're not charged, our credit cards are not charged for using Gmail or using, uh, using MySpace my, my, my or using YouTube. But what is, is, is free speech and free beer the sum total of freedom? Is there more at stake here? Um, what about this new type of surveillance, this new type of data gathering that's going on uh, through and by these companies. Um, what exactly are we giving away in the transaction? We know what we're getting, and much of the conference was spent examining what we're getting out of this transaction. What are we giving, and what's at stake here, especially when the FBI comes knocking, uh, which of course it has been and will increasingly. Um, I also suspect that we need to have a new theory of surveillance. Um, I'm really tired of reading about the Panopticon when yeah. people talk yeah. about surveillance. So the conversation cannot end there, and that's unfortunately where it does. We actually are seeing the exact opposite of the Panopticon. We're seeing millions of people interact with spaces through which they are observed in detail, profiled in detail, and they haven't a clue, right? The Panopticon is only the Panopticon because you know you're being watched. Yeah. 
But what we have here is millions of people who don't actually understand the extent to which they're being watched. There's something else going on here. We need a new metaphor and an entirely new theory of surveillance. Uh, and I think we're getting there. I sense that there are a lot of other people in this room and at this conference who are rethinking surveillance along those terms. Uh, the fourth thing I learned is that we are um, uh, playing around with exciting new modes for uh, searching and indexing information. Um, we are, uh, as a community, not only of scholars but of users, um, becoming amateur librarians, uh, with the emphasis on the amateur, untrained, unskilled, and yet uh, getting better at it, right? Through the process of tagging, through the process of web searching, we are organizing, we're, we're, uh, uh, we're, we're putting a tremendous amount of energy into categorizing, into developing standards of keywords. This all has political implication down the line. Librarians know it well, um, we're not quite so hip to it. Uh, I think we need to connect very strongly with the library community to get a better understanding of what's going on with the process of searching and tagging. Uh, and the fifth thing that I've learned is that there is deep concern out there and exciting and, and heartening concern out there about norms and ethics. Uh, almost every conversation that I dropped into this weekend uh, was, uh, was framed in, in terms of norms and ethics. Um, there seems to be a, a very strong desire to infuse a culture of respect into a lot of what we study and do. Um, I, was, uh, I was excited to hear in many of the copyright panels that I went to um, discussions about, uh, about um, uh, the, the politics of uh, indigenous culture, native culture, and the ways that that really complicates uh, the worship of the public domain. Um, that's the sort of conversation that has to happen more here. Um, uh, one of the things that really excites me is the fact that, you know, when you, when you sort of read the surface area coverage of what's going on in Wikipedia, it's all about, you know, truth, errors, corrections, community, free beer, free speech, et cetera. But the action of Wikipedia, what's really interesting is the conversation going on beneath every entry. Much of it about norms and ethics. Much of it about the tone of the writing much of it about uh, the value of authority or the, or the oppressive, op oppressive effects of authority, um, that's, that's a key. I think that what's going on, what Wikipedia and Wikipedia folks, the foundation have provided to us, is a great set of texts through which to study the sense of collective norm forming, right? The Wikipedia community is all about forming and adhering to norms. Um, and, and the result has been really impressive, of course. Um, and then I want to leave you by um, uh, sampling from uh, uh, Dana Boyd, who I think is one of the uh, strongest and most original thinkers about so many of these issues. Uh, she gave a talk at uh, the O'Reilly Conference a few weeks ago in which she urged us to focus less on the magic and nuts and bolts of the technologies and more on the magic of what human beings do with each other and the reasons that we, are, we seem by the millions to be grabbing at these new platforms and new forms of connection to satisfy needs and desires that we've had for centuries, uh, we do want to share culture in a circle. We do want to form virtual drum circles. We do want to connect with old friends and make new friends. And what's really at work here? That's where the action is. That's where the magic is, she argues. We should be paying more attention to what human beings want to do with this stuff than the stuff itself. Thanks. Thanks very much, Siva. We, um, what we need to do now is, uh, is with all of these uh, comments and perspectives and um, uh, thoughts about the current conference in mind, swivel ourselves to the future and um, try to think about what um, MIT 6 should be like, what the theme for that conference should be. Uh, I want to invite um, 
uh, we can certainly uh, engage in a discuss discussion involving this table, but you know, I, I really want to invite people to come down to the microphones um, if you have thoughts about um, where we should go from here. Uh, and as I'm waiting for that, I just want to mention a few things about um, the current conference theme, creativity, ownership, collaboration, and how that pertains to the form of the content and what we've done uh, uh, to the form of the conference and what we've what we've done uh, together at uh, at MIT Five as a as a group. Uh, if we still think that the uh, medium is uh, the message to some extent, we want to consider what uh, uh, things like um, uh, the presence of uh, artists and uh, and writers and curators at the conference, people who are not academics, you know, means in terms of fostering creativity. Uh, in terms of ownership, uh, the fact that uh, the conference has a good system for sharing abstracts and uh, full papers for those people who want to provide them, um, I think is really important. I think these are things we want to see how we can continue to foster uh, these in the future. Um, you know, then there are challenges, there are issues. Uh, this is not within the conference's control, but I spoke to someone who um, had uh, published a full paper on the uh, on a previous media and transition site, and uh, you know, then uh, when that was going to uh, journal publication, uh, you know, of course, it needed to be removed. Uh, this is the model of publication as withdrawing something from the public instead of showing it to the public. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a common uh, uh, thing that we face um, in our community here, talking about these issues. Um, and I just wanted to also mention how pleased I was to see uh, the level of collaborative work that itself was evinced at the conference. So I counted, uh, and could possibly come up with a different number depending upon how you're counting, but I counted 252 different presentations that went on here. And uh, of those, uh, 32 had uh, more than one author. Uh, having, uh, having that you know, greater than 10% for um, a conference that's very involved with the humanities uh, is uh, a special thing and something that uh, um, I think we can, you know, uh, as we look to the future, we should think about that as well. But let me invite um, either uh, questions that are directed to our panelists here or to Henry, uh, David, uh, William must be around somewhere. People, there he is. Um, uh, uh, people who are going to be uh, looking to see how uh, MIT 6 can be put together. I do, I do this when everyone else is afraid to speak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I thought I would just add a few comments about, uh, uh, really, really, uh, uh, first gratitude to all of you. And uh, the thing that's mattered to me most about these events, uh, and each year, each time we've run these events, it's gotten better in that way, has been the tremendous influx of people not from the United States. And those of us who are resident in this benighted and uh, hopefully self-rectifying society uh, want to express our gratitude for those of you who have come from foreign shores despite America's recent behavior to enlighten us. And I'm certainly grateful for that. But I also uh, would like to sort of raise a couple of questions that have occurred to me in the course of our our deliberations, uh, and they're they're grounded in part in what are essentially sort of uh, old humanist and essentially conservative perspectives, as all of you will instantly recognize. Uh, one issue that I think uh, needs to be emphasized has come up uh, in the comments of nearly everyone on the panel, uh, and I, I wanted to reinforce it as well. It seemed to me that to put it in its, in its 
starkest form. It seemed to me there was rather too much optimism in our conference if we were going to be critical about it. That is to say, we're, we, we, were, we were embracing the future too quickly. Is what, I mean, I don't mean that we're wrong to be excited about this future. It's an astonishing future. We're right about that. But it's hard, I think, to maintain the sort of uh, rigor and maturity and intellectual toughness and seriousness to resist one's enthusiasm in, uh, in, in, sufficiently such that certain kinds of dangers and, and, and problems can be openly acknowledged. And I think one that has come up in the, in our, in our, in the panel's discourse, today, in, in the summaries uh, from all four of our speakers, really, and especially from a couple of them, that I feel very strongly is the relative optimism, or put it another way, the, the, the relatively unproblematic way in which so many of us at the conference have embraced some variation on a kind of corporate definition of ownership, a corporate definition of creativity, a corporate definition of what it means to, to uh, even use these new technologies. I'm, and I'm repeating, of course, course, a, a warning that I think came from the, from, from, from the four uh, summarizers, but I think it's tremendously important. I mean, I think uh, uh, we can, there's no question that the study of fan communities and the study of the creative appropriations that consumers make of consumer products is very important, but it is foolish for us to pretend that that's the end of creativity. <laughs> that the deepest kinds of creativity ought to begin in some kind of uh, energy that is, uh, and, and impulse that is not handed to people from, from corporate structures and that does not have some sort of uh, secret agenda behind it. Of in a certain way, what I'm criticizing is the whole tradition of discourse that grows out of Deserteau uh, concerning uh, the relative optimism with which we embrace the tactical decisions that consumers make. Yes consumers make tactical decisions. Yes, they can be creative, and of course it's true that the appropriations of these corporate materials have led to very creative and remarkable achievements, but it, it's a terrible mistake for us to imagine that the parameters of creativity are thereby defined. We need to get beyond that very, very strongly. And I think that what, what Siva was suggesting at the end about the sort of uh, clandestine or, 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 or essentially underground ways in which the corporate economy is establishing norms and expectations that aren't even brought to the surface uh, has been true since the computer age began. And one of the shocking things at MIT, it has always seemed to me, is how relatively undisturbed many of the technologists at MIT are about the most fundamental protocols that have now been established essentially globally for computer use. I'm not now talking even about the kinds of problems that were suggested by some folks on the panel concerning uh, the control of materials and copyright issues. I'm talking about things like the fact that as, as soon as you buy a computer, you are owned by some corporations and your behaviors are being tracked. Uh, is there any other product you can buy that instantly causes you to lose the autonomy you control over the other objects that you own? Imagine buying an automobile that sort of broke down every five blocks and said, wait a minute, we need a beta fix. <laughs> or, or imagine turning on your radio in your, in, in, in your automobile and, and instead, instead of hearing what you want to see, be, being forced to listen to a, a, a whole series of, of intervening uh, 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 advertisements or inducements of various kinds before you could get to the, to the, to the uh, item that you wanted. Uh, or imagine the idea that you would turn on your, your car radio as some people, that the mayor of New York has this idea that he wants to track cars coming into the city, talk about surveillance issues. Um, imagine a situation in which when you bought the car, your movements were surveilled automatically by the, by, by the Toyota Corporation. 
in a certain sense, that happens with computer use. And I think we've all been a little bit too complacent about the implications of that. Or to put it another way, what we've allowed is a kind of dispensation in which the protocols that are established willy-nilly at the beginning of an arrangement are simply allowed to instantiate themselves without systematic questioning. So it seems to me that there are there's a very deep, dark side to this, to this new world that's dawning that we, that we I, and I know that we're all aware, m most of you are aware of it, but I think sometimes in our enthusiasm and our excitement about the new possibilities, we minimize the dangers that we're walking into. So, uh, so th that's, uh, and, and I have one other uh, sort of general comment. I hope some of you will be stimulated to disagreement and also uh, join the conversation. And that has to do with the suggestion that Tom Pettit made uh, in the very first panel about this, about this parenthesis, this Gutenberg parenthesis. We need to realize that there is a, re there is a reason why so many of you who had perhaps never heard the, uh, uh, the term before, who had encountered it somewhat earlier, uh, that the excitement with which that category, that, that, that conception is greeted, especially by folks who are interested in, the cyber, in, in, in cyberspace and in digital developments, is an excitement that's partly colored by the idea that there is implicitly a ratification of our condition and an implicit critique of the past, as if to say, okay, Shakespeare and that print culture belongs to the past. We don't really need to feel guilty about the fact that we never really read Dickens closely and everything that my old professors were telling me about Dickens' glories, I don't have to worry about anymore. I can free myself from guilt. The new digital dispensation will solve all problems. The truth is, it may not have been a parenthesis. Let's be careful. It's a speculative way of thinking about the past. And if it was a parenthesis, it was a bloody glorious parenthesis. It was a parenthesis we should revere. It was a parenthesis we should study and archive and imitate and follow. It is not a parenthesis we should put behind us and say, all right, let's get on with our digital work. If we proceed out of this alleged parenthesis into a digital future without a sufficient respect for the glories of that print culture, we will really run into a, an intellectually and morally impoverished future. Not something I would wish on anyone. Amen. <laughs> the only thing I can add to that is that as someone who lives south of 74th Street in Manhattan, I, I think it's a good idea that everybody be surveilled as they come into the city because <laughs> it's everybody else and not me. So that works out. sort of a recommendation looking forward to the next. Could you tell us uh, your name? Yeah, I'm, I'm Michael Epstein. I'm a CMS 04 uh, graduate, and uh, I had a panel here on mobile narrative development. Um, and my interest is, is uh, getting more and more towards um, uh, geospatial media, media that actually brings you back to physical space, and, and rather than being an, an extensive web, is a very specific local uh, personal experience. And uh, I, I was intrigued by the idea of the C generation. Uh, I, I like the idea, the one, the one word courage uh, really uh, stuck out in my mind as I was listening to this. And um, there's two other uh, kind of uh, C words uh, that, that, that pops in my head with courage. There's the idea too of crisis. Uh, and I think that uh, Professor Thorburn uh, jokingly uh, uh, talked about that a bit with our foreign uh, um, uh, attendees who've come over here and, and, and the situation of uh, the United States. And I think that uh, there's various uh, 
uh, acts of courage uh, that could be done uh, with new media uh, to, to address some of the, the crises that are going on uh, in, in the world. Um, and, and just getting into various forms of courage. I think there's also corporate courage, too, in that you have some corporations that really do want to try to dig into this stuff and how do new media producers hold their hands or out, you know, perform an outreach to, to the traditional uh, you know, media makers and, and larger entities in, in, uh, in, in bringing our skills. I think that traditionally uh, in the program, what I've seen, there is a sort of uh, uh, happiness that we're not corporate and that we're not aligned necessarily with those voices and that we have more freedom and flexibility and they're doing it the old way and we get to do it the new way. And the courage to sort of try to bridge that gap I think uh, is something uh, uh, to consider. And then I, I guess also, too, the, uh, the courage to bring, um, uh, you know, networked virtual communities into face-to-face -face contact as much as possible uh, and provide on-ground, in-person experiences uh, in, in addition to uh, uh, new media is, is uh, something that I'd, I'd like to see more of. Mm -hmm. One thing I would like to add, the, I, I very much like the idea of the C generation because it's also a kind of generation, as, at least when I look at my graduate students or undergraduate students especially, um, and it doesn't start with a C, but it's, it starts with an N, it's naivete. And you know, the kind of naivety they have in putting things on the internet, you know, I argue with them talking about the C of control and you know, they say, well, you know, I can put everything on, on uh, Gmail and, and you know, I put everything on YouTube. And I t try to instruct them that, you know, the kind of Googleization that's going on, you know, they don't know yet what is happening with the data they're putting out on the internet. And it's incredible how that, you know, the sea of creativity is sort of um, uh, lined off with a sea of, uh, uh, what it was, uh, or you called it crisis, but I think it's sort of a, a lack of um, understanding of how these things may work in a potential future. <coughs> It's Tom Pettit from Europe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I agree with uh, Professor Thorburn. I think there was a Gutenberg parenthesis. Uh, I gather now I disagree with him. I think it must have been pretty awful. Uh, and since uh, speaking uh, in the first session, I've been at the, at the, the place down the road uh, and examining the letters of a folk singer. Uh, a lady who uh, provided the Scottish collectors with folk songs, with ballads, a very precious collection of ballads. Uh, and this lady, in a letter written the 23rd of, of December 1800, uh, she was writing to a folk song collector to, to whom she had sent the texts of some of her songs. Uh, but she discovered to her, uh, gasped to discover that a, a, a duplicate copy of these songs had been sent to another collector in the meantime. And she writes to the first collector... I was a good deal vexed to see what an odd impression it might make in your eyes that another should be in possession of what you have good reason to believe was yours exclusively. I hope you will by now be convinced it was come about without any sinister practice on my side. I am very, very sorry, says this woman, this, folk, this, this singer to the gentleman collectors who were Taking, taking her texts from her. I'm very sorry, I've given my text, my songs, to more than one person. I meant them to go to you, but they've also gone to someone else, and I'm very sorry. You must have thought they belonged to you now. 
and I'm very sorry that I gave them to someone else. It's, that sounds, getting out of a world like that, that is moving into the Gutenberg parenthesis in an awful way when suddenly songs that belong to tradition become the possession. Even the singer thinks that the songs become the possession uh, of the collector, of the man, the gentleman, who will print them in books. Uh, so uh, entering the Gutenberg parenthesis in one way is a kind of free freedom, but C, C could also be for Caliban. Caliban, the salvage man, the slave in the tempest who is enslaved to Prospero, uh, and at a moment when Caliban feels he's emerging from out of slavery from, from Prospero, uh, he, he sings a freedom song. High day, holiday, freedom, freedom, I'm going to get a new master. <laughs> a new master. Not freedom, I'm leaving the old master, I'm going to get a new master. So I fear, thinking about the future, I fear the future, I've, my diagram suggests the future is medieval. Uh, I fear more specifically we may be moving, and I, that, that fear has been confirmed by remarks today, I fear we, you, may be moving into an era of digital feudalism. In a virtual world of plague and insecurity, web warlords will offer protection in return for fealty, and surfing will lead to serfdom. <laughs> I suggest that the topic for MIT, what, six in two years' time, uh, when this Woodstock becomes, was it Altamont? <laughs> the one that went awfully wrong when Woodstock becomes Altamont, I suggest the term that the, the topic for the next MIT should be what went wrong. <laughs> Do you have any comments on that? <laughs> so I, I, sure, I'll offer one quick, quick thought. Um, Woodstock was already wrong, and, and, and this is something that I think gets forgotten. Um, we tend to misremember the counterculture as a single broad youth movement, and we tend to remember it as universally political, um, and it wasn't. Um, the movement actually had two, in America, two very different wings. Um, a political wing that became the new left and protested the war, and a communalist wing that gave rise to the largest commune movement in American history, more than 10 million Americans in communes between 66 and 73. That wing, um, which featured the Merry Pranksters and others, embraced technology, embraced um, business activity as sites of social change, and repudiated politics. And it's that group that I think is in power today. Um, you know, Paul Hawken, who hosted the Come Down Party for the Trips Festival, founded Smith & Hawken. Stuart Brand consults for the Pentagon. Um, you know, that group is very, very active in framing our understandings. And their vision of utopianism is, is the vision that was brought to life at Woodstock, a collaborative community of consciousness, a community of like minds brought together around a performative technology. And I hear a lot of that rhetoric today. Um, if there was a failing that gives rise to the Altamont later, it's not hiring the Hell's Angels. I would argue it's the turn away from politics at Woodstock. It's the turn away from politics in the early 60s. It's the turn toward technology, toward business, and toward the transformation of consciousness as the basis of forming a new kind of exemplary community. Um, Americans have, have been in love with the notion of the city on the hill for 300 years. And the notion there is we can leave England and then set a new example here. And the example alone will be sufficient to transform the world around us. And I don't think that's the case. And I think our challenge in, thinking, in preventing digital feudalism 
is theorizing not only the emergence of the new digital worlds, but the, the, their connection to sometimes invisible collective practices, institutionalized practices, and sometimes very visible ones, military action, governments, that kind of stuff. If, if we don't make the mistake of the new communalists, if we enjoy their pleasures but retain our engagement with politics, well, then I think things don't necessarily have to be as, as medieval as Tom suggests. But I think there's another model here, Brad, and that is that there, I mean, uh, I mean you've, 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 you've traced the bifurcation and the depoliticization of, of uh, important parts of, of, of the counterculture and its uh, direct effect on the rise of cyberculture. And I think you've, 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 you've made your case about as well as, as you could, but there's the other part of the story is actually what happens in Europe, where there's not such a clear bifurcation between counterculture and, mm -hmm. and, and new left. You have, in fact, by the 70s, a, um, a, 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 a sense of um, a collective um, uh, shared uh, future or shared agenda between 68ers from Prague and 68ers from Paris. You have, uh, you have the rise in importance of um, squatter communities like Christiania and in, uh, um, uh, Denmark. in Denmark, and, and uh, the provosts in, uh, in, in, in Holland who, who work from a very sort of countercultural, hedonistic point of view into a major political movement that, 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 that alters the, the shape of democratic socialism in Northern Europe. And, and you have that sense of full engagement out of those, out of similar um, uh, complaints about the, the stasis of society and the, and the old structures of society. And that actually, I think, affects the way that Europeans think about the, the transformative potential of the current technological moment. Um, and I think that there's a, something to explore there. There's something to explore there about the sort of nature of activism and the nature of, 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 uh, of uh, cultural engagement and its connection to political engagement within Europe. Yeah, I would agree. And I think the European lesson is one of timing. You know, the European movements that you're pointing to really kick into gear in the late 60s and early 1970s, about seven years after the American movements actually get underway. And what ports over to Europe from America is a kind of collaborative style, but it ports over as style. Um, European political systems, European party-based action are, stay very strong um, throughout. And you know, the Europeans are able to meld a kind of personalist critique of capitalist society with a very strong socialist and social party orientation that we have, have lacked here throughout our history. And that fusion is precisely where I think we need to go. Mm. That's one of the reasons I mentioned uh, Habermas and his public sphere, because that's, uh, there is a very different notion in, uh, of public sphere, of course, in the European media context. And I think, you know, I didn't hear that at all throughout the conference, what this all means to participatory culture for a public sphere that is still in the context of public uh, television, for instance, in the Netherlands or elsewhere in Europe, is still 50% of the culture. And that is something I would really like to, you know, to turn to because what does it mean to have a participatory culture in the context of a much larger public sphere? What does it mean for that notion of public? Right. And how does public become more public if more people participated in it from a more technological and individual sense of, uh, you know, where they come from? I would entirely agree and say one thing very quickly. I think we need to distinguish between um, public, collective, and social. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those are different things. And, and they're worth struggling with each in their own way. Huh. Great. So uh, a question. Yeah, David Silver, University of San Francisco. Uh, with the exception of the indigenous panel that Suzanne uh, described elegantly, uh, this has been my favorite panel. And, and the reason for that is because we finally got a little bit critical. <laughs> and thank you for those C's. It, it, it's as if uh, capitalism does not exist on this campus. It's as if... Uh, 
commodification, <laughs> consumerism. It, it was quite remarkable. So thank you for giving us a little bit of a reality check. Uh, three things. First, uh, we're all studying conversational media and our conferences are anything but conversational. We've got to somehow reconfigure these rooms. This is ridiculous. <laughs> this, this whole expert on the stage uh, reading a paper for 15 minutes and giving the audience members maybe you know, 30 seconds to speak, it, it just doesn't work anymore. <laughs> Second, more librarians. Uh, come on, thank you, Siva. We, we need more librarians, yeah. Um, no, you guys can clap. Yeah, we, we need more librarians. Um, in general, uh, you can say that academics hoard knowledge, librarians share knowledge. Third, um, we need to learn how to log off. And I, I'm very interested in a non-neo-Luddite critique of technology. Uh, I, I've, I've witnessed many panelists twittering, uh, text messaging, and uh, reading their email while trying to watch the presentation. And I'm, I'm also wondering, is, although I really enjoyed the educational panel I saw on, on Friday, um, our students' attention spans are frightening. It, it, it's horrifying, and, and I'm not joking in the least. And, and I'm kind of wondering, uh, you know, I have friends who are online eight hours, 10 hours, 15 hours, 18 hours a day. This is not right, and it's not healthy. And I think it's very interesting that the, the historical moment that we become so enmeshed into our screens is the same historical moment that we're finally waking up to the earth, which is yeah. desperately sick, if not already dead. So I'd, I'd like to just put those things on the agenda for MIT 6. Thank you. Yeah, let's turn to the next comment or question so that we can um, hear from the two people who are waiting. Uh, I'm Ron Robinson, uh, UC Santa Barbara. Uh, the uh, phenomenon that you speak of has been, there's a term that's been coined for that, continuous partial attention. Uh, and it is, a, I, I think that's a very valuable insight. And, and there's a lot of valuable things that have been uh, spoken to uh, right, you know, just in this one session here. And the thing that I'd like to um, bring to mind is courage. And the root, uh, the French root of the word couer, heart, to have heart, to take heart, to be open-hearted, and to be able to connect in this way uh, with our emotions to the real issues that we're attempting to address and, and not be so um, taken in by the, the glitter of the technological possibilities that, that are at hand and in, in particularly being uh, situated and located in a place that is so well known for them. Um, and that this kind of open-heartedness, I believe, through the radical inclusivity that Suzanne um, talks about, um, I really do think, and that, and that Fred also spoke to with regards to issues, of, particularly in terms of communities of color, and those of us who are fully immersed in these communities in terms of being welcomed in ways that are, uh, are truly radical and inclusive, um, not just in terms of the convention or a conference, but in an ongoing process of collaboration, a kind of radical collaboration where we're not just the objects or subjects of somebody's study or the uh, a consultant to a project or whatever it ha happens to be, but that, that the foundations and funding sources and, and institutions that are involved in, in doing research and creating applications, et cetera, truly include us as equals that have something important to share 
and, and to be involved as PIs and co-PIs and be important participants within the process. And um, the last comment I want to make about um, uh, Fred, I think, raised an important issue in terms of what really is the culture that seems to inform um, this dynamic of remixing, et cetera, that goes and harkens back to those, those Cold War days, uh, in the beginning of the Cold War, et cetera, and military simulation thing, as opposed to the, the more um, vibrant and dynamic aspects of, uh, of hip hop. And within that context, I would like to see people like Chuck D come and be invited to the conference, or, or George Clinton or others in, in films that show the beginning stages of where hip-hop was, and then what happened to it after the copyright laws got involved, and how the creativity was, was crushed, and how the corporate interests came in and turned it into a dynamic of self-destructive kind of uh, 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 lyrical... Uh, um, exercises that are very harmful, et cetera, and how the 12 song um, rotation cycles on the radio stations just keep pumping out the same thing, but yet the fingers being pointed at these kids as being the cause for the de demise of the culture and the corporations walk away scot-free. And so these are the issues and, and, and what David brought to mind, this whole thing of the surveillance. Why not have an open source community devoted to creating uh, uh, the kinds of algorithms that can be used for encryption so we can play the cat and mouse game so we can hide and not always be caught you know, by, the, by the overseers. So these are some things that I, I, I'd like to share. Thank you. Come on. <laughs> Go for it. All right. It's courage. Um, so it, just to kind of echo, I think, on top of all of these things, and that's why I wasn't sure I needed to comment, but I didn't really, uh, I haven't heard anybody express this particular thing. It seems like there's generally a schism here between the corporate and then the academic worlds that we're kind of talking about. And I, this is my first academic conference ever. I'm still a student in my master's program. And I took complete courage in doing a project to present here. Um, I initially had some paranoia because the project involves some corporate commentary. And, and I was only able to do it through collaboration across, you know, with people I'd worked for in, in the past. And coming to this conference, I've been trying to seek out other people's resources for future projects or... And, and I, would, I would advise so far as like MIT-6, it's having kind of almost an advanced opportunity to have access to a community of experts where you have the safe haven to explore solutions uh, that I don't necessarily, and also on that level, and I think MIT does this probably better than other campuses where you're tied in more with corporations in advance. That it doesn't need to be an antagonistic relationship so far as understanding where trademark, property rights, you know, so far as participatory culture. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to a question of, you know, everybody wants to live in a better place, in theory, with participatory culture. And there are some checks and balances currently that participatory culture is allowing that corporations are needing to respond to. And I guess I would just ask that, you know, I mean, to me, academically, that's kind of a question as to you know, there are sources of funding for academia that I was, you know, the, the, you know where the, is the autonomy? And I guess the, the question is, I, I'm just kind of wanting to see, uh, yeah, just a greater exploration of those gray areas and also wondering if that's not where the convergence is with feudalism. I mean, we tend to ex almost accept 
hegemon, I can't pronounce the word, but we all know it. Um, and there's plenty of case studies of emergent, you know, subcultures and how they get contained eventually that the people with power would have it. And I don't know if that's going to be repeated in that kind of apocalyptic sense. And I guess so far as what went wrong is the title for MIT6 is, can you create a lab that has an advance about how to make it right and have a really interesting discussion of, through collaborative efforts with people saying, you know, I was thinking about this thing. You want to help me with that? You're really good at that. And then coming in and presenting this thing that couldn't have cre gotten created without the sum of the whole and I think that, that you know, of all the players. And I think that's the message of participatory culture is that it's better when there's more experts. And so... We have a lot of experts, so is there something to make better, I guess? So thanks, and I, wanna, I just want to mention, you know, there's <laughs> other worlds besides the uh, corporate and the academic, certainly, that are at play with writers, you know, musicians, artists, uh, many people who are represented at the current conference, and so, you know, and, and some which have been mentioned, yeah, you know, military sphere as well. Okay. Uh, Theo Hook from Europe as well. Uh, from Austria, to be precise, a little bit more. It's always a great pleasure uh, for me to be here and to partake with my students. And uh, this time, my impression was that the conference was very much focused on westernized contemporary societies, and sometimes especially on U.S. American consumer culture. And uh, so I have two recommendations for MIT6. One is uh, tracing the interplay of technological, uh, social, and cultural dynamics uh, in, a, in a more, uh, let's say, focusing different parts of the world and having looks at, uh, at, at uh, the interplay of those dynamics or metadynamics as well and, uh, and keeping the eyes open uh, across the borders. And uh, the second one is uh, I want to underline uh, Susanne's statement in many, many places. We have... Uh, to, to shorten it, uh, old pedagogy and new media. And uh, that won't work for the future. So we have to overcome these educational lags and to find new models and to put a certain emphasis on that as well. Thanks. So I'm Jen Jensen from York University. And I actually want to start by thanking the four of you to take the time and intellectual effort that you did to uh, summarize what was a very rich and rewarding conference. And the reason I'm standing up is because I sat through the last two and a half days and I've watched as um, my male colleagues have been more than willing to come down to the mic. And we've mentioned a lot about race, but we haven't mentioned gender. And we haven't looked at the historical... <laughs> When we look at technology, if we look at a historicization of technology, it's very much a masculinist culture. And I think that we have to work really very hard to overcome that in our conferences, in the ways in which we create opportunities for people to speak and the places that they can speak from and feel comfortable speaking from. I'm standing up here and my heart's pounding. You know, I'm dying. But I thought it was really an important thing to mention. Because I think that if we don't, we forget that we're leaving out really important voices and questions that I very much would have liked to have heard. But um, you know, we didn't create the space for that to happen. So 
in the next iteration, I would also like <laughs> some specific attention to be paid to that as well. So um, one thing I want to mention is that this isn't the conclusion of the conversation, but we will uh, continue this discussion. Um, Henry's offered to put a post up on his blog, at henryjenkins.org, where we can come, you know, with a finer grain, more detailed comments that you have about the conference and changes that you'd like to be made, ideas about uh, the future theme. Uh, it's, uh, it may not be the uh, ideal um, threaded, uh, beautifully arrayed, um, you know, multi-party conversation system, but it's a way to uh, uh, have that conversation online. Um, and, uh, I, and I think uh, uh, adding comments to a blog can be very effective for having that sort of discussion. Uh, it's a way that, it can, that those can be public. And so we'll carry on um, in that way. Uh, we do have time for one more question. Very briefly. Okay. Um, I spend my time worrying about the historical record <coughs> as a librarian at MIT. And as somebody that's half time, the other half of my life I spend on digital preservation. I would like to urge MIT six to consider archivists as well as librarians. They're in the process so that we can do the kind of history that our panel is suggesting we might be able to do. Thank you. Thanks. So right right now we're right at two, which is when we're supposed to end. So um, uh, I will, uh, I guess, give these folks a chance to comment on Henry's blog if they want to say something, uh, <laughs> something further, so that everyone can get to their flights and uh, um, otherwise make their way. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. Likewise. Yeah, I mean, I